Man, if you got your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to look at the final moments of our Lord's ministry here on earth. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to, to wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you that every little detail of your ministry is important, and how much more so your ascension. Lord, I would ask by the work of your Spirit that you would seal on our minds eternal truths. Truths not just only for knowledge purpose, but truths that teach us how to live for life eternal. Truths that can benefit us here on earth. And truths that mature us into your children. Please speak through me today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you all know, a couple weeks ago we had an air show down at the base. And you all were very kind and gracious to pray uh, for that air show. We had almost 200,000 visitors at the base It was quite an undertaking, and when you have something like that go on, there are quite a lot of details, Uh, boxes to be checked, things that need to be done in a certain order and in a certain way, Uh, because security, as you know in our day and age, is at a premium. Well, after you go through everything that was done, there was one important detail that needed to happen, and that was to happen on the Monday after the air show. You see... In the Air Force, one of the things we must do whenever there is a large performance or we have uh, the Blue Angels, well, those are the Navy guys. We won't comment on them, but uh, we have the Thunderbirds in town. There we go. Uh, Whoever it might be performing all these things and all these people, civilians coming in, there can be a lot of trash left out on the base. And one of the things about aircraft is they are very sensitive extremely sensitive. So sensitive that any little thing left out uh, on that flight line can be an absolute hazard to that aircraft. And so at 6 a.m., the whole base, and I mean the whole base, got up and walked right next to each other and walked that whole flight line to make sure there wasn't the single little speck that could have been out there to damage some engine. Uh, A wad of paper could be a million-dollar accident. That's how important that walk is. 
So too, when we look at the life of Christ, we often look at His birth, His teachings, His death, and His resurrection. And that sort of gets all the big flair. Sort of what catches all the attention. But what we miss is this sort of little ending point. His ascension that teaches us some great eternal truths. And that is what we're going to look at today. Because just like that walk that we did, I believe it's called a fob walk. If we do not do that, we do not look at His ascension, then we miss some of the most important parts of our Lord's ministry. And that is where we're at today. Last week we looked at Jesus' marching orders to the eleven, didn't we? He, he gave them a couple of them. Remember the first one He did was after 40 days He appeared to His disciples. Now we don't know the exact reason why there was 40 days, but the Lord chose that. And during those 40 days, He appeared to Mary first, and then to Peter and the twelve. And Paul tells us He actually appeared at one time to more than 500 eyewitnesses. They all saw the risen Christ. And during that time, Jesus wanted to answer the doubts they had, as we saw last week. He wanted to show them the truthfulness of His victory over the grave. He allowed them to touch Him, to see His wounds in His hands, in His side, and in His feet. He even ate fish in their presence to show them that He did possess a real body, a resurrected body. And He did this to show them, to help them to believe in the miraculous, that He did indeed conquer the grave. Next we saw too last week to help them grow in their faith is He opened their minds to Scriptures. He showed that the law, the Psalms, and the prophets all point to the God-man, Jesus Christ. That was the work of the Holy Spirit, enlightening them of the eternal reality of God's Word, that it all points to Jesus, that there's this single crimson cord that runs through the tapestry of God's redemptive history. And that cord sort of points to one person. It sort of gives us an image of Jesus. It's all about Him from beginning to end, His work of redemption and saving mankind. After that, Jesus told the twelve, told the disciples that they were to wait for power from on high. And that was for the Holy Spirit to come. But you notice in our text today, the twelve had a question, didn't they? It's sort of like that one burning question that everybody wants to ask. That's all on their minds. And so they ask Him a question. And the question was, when would the restoration of Israel happen? When would Israel be restored to its glory and its greatness? And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't answer the... He answers, I'm sorry, the question of time, not the issue of restoration. He sort of assumes the fact that the restoration will sometimes happen, but He tells them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. It reminds us of Calvin's favorite verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, and the secret things of God are left to Him, but those things are revealed are given to us to know God. This was one of the things that God said, that's far enough, man. I can't let you know any more than this. And so we're cautioned there not to go further into that speculation, just like the twelve. But the one thing Jesus did emphasize, and what none of us should miss, is our mandate, our call. And that is for us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and Judea and Samaria and the remote ends of the earth. That is all our mandate if we follow Christ, if we are a believer of Him, if we are a child of God, we are to witness for Him. We are to testify about who He is. And that was our marching order. But as those final words were given, something happened. Jesus ascended into heaven. His ascension is quite different from the other ascensions in Scripture. We have Enoch and Elijah. In those cases, a chariot of fire, we're told, swept these men up and took them into heaven, showing that the power was not of their own. But in Jesus' case, there is no outside resource needed. It is all of His own doing and of His own power. He rises from the ground up into the sky until a cloud conceals them from His sight. Now please notice something about our Scripture. The disciples at that time don't leave. They continue to stare into the sky. This had to have been one of the most captivating sights that a person could ever see. The resurrected body of Christ rising up into the clouds and then into heaven. So captivating was this sight that two angels sort of had to interrupt the whole scene, didn't they? Did you catch that? They're spellbound. They're awestruck. And the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Now, obviously, in our modern age, we're accustomed to Superman or a whole multitude of superheroes. We've seen on the big screen people fly up into the sky and disappear. But this was an absolutely impressive sight. No one like this had ever went to heaven on their own. And notice the fact is that He went into heaven. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has been exalted above the heavens. He is now in heaven, in a specific location, in the very throne room of God. George Fuller, one of the teachers at Westminster Seminary, wrote this, We also understand that Jesus' ascension involves a change of state as the curtain closes, not to open again until His return. The eye of our body cannot now see Jesus, but that in no way reduces our assurance in His existence with the Father and His continued ministry. Joseph Alexander, the first professor of Princeton Seminary, commented this way, Our Savior did not vanish or miraculously disappear, but simply passed beyond the boundary of our vision. And how true. You and I are not permitted. We are limited. We cannot see into the throne room of heaven. Jesus is now outside our vision. But He is there at the right hand of God the Father. Now often in the writings of Jesus, as I said before, we focus on His birth, on His life, His teachings, on His death, on His resurrection, the work He did on the cross, His atonement. But not as much as focused on His ascension. And there's four things I'd like to share with you that we really need to understand what's true about His ascension. And first, they are His position, where He's at now, His replacement. His intercession and His company. So the New Testament writers tell us that He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. What does that mean? Well, the right hand is a position, is it not? It's a position of authority. 
In the Air Force, we have a thing called EZEC, an EZEC. And it's a short term because in the Air Force, we always like to acrosticize or put in an acronym to anything and everything and make our own little language. And we call these guys or ladies EZECs, and that stands for Executive Officer. Who executive officer is this? In every Air Force base, there is a wing. At Davis-Monthan, we're called the 355th Fighter Wing. And there is a commander. It's General Paul Johnson. He is the commander. And under him, there are four group commanders. They're all colonels. There's mission support group. There's the ops group, the medical group, and the maintenance group. And each one of these folks, there's a colonel, a commander in charge of that. And all the squadrons are under them. But next to each commander is an executive officer. Now, why do we have that position? If they're not the commander, why do we have an executive officer? Well, the executive officer is the one who pretty much runs everything. They do all the details. And their goal is to free up the commander so that they might think and and understand the issues that need to be done. So they're not caught up in all the busy work. That is the work of the executive officer. And I would say the same is true for Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we know, is fully God and has all the qualities of God, but He has deferred authority to the Father. The Father is ahead of Him. And so there there might not be any division in the Godhead. This position means that Jesus has been given rightful rule over all creation. His work on earth, His death on the cross, has secured for Him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus Christ. And His victory on Calvary also secures the success of the gospel and the certainty that everyone who believes in Him will be saved. This is the work of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the throne of God. But this brings us a question, doesn't it? If Jesus is at the right hand and He's completely over everything, why do we still have Satan running around? Why do we have His chief adversary at work? Well, though... The work in eternity, the work in heaven, has been completed by Christ. The work on earth is still at hand. God is still working in His church. And though His chief foe, the devil, is outside working woe in all of us, nothing that the devil does can go outside of God's plan. Some have said the devil is God's little messenger boy. He works through him to accomplish his purposes of redemption. And though he assails us, and though he wounds us, and though he hurts us, they're not outside the scope of God's work of redemption. He ultimately uses any work that the devil does to bring it back around, to bring glory to himself. And also the certainty of his ascension also to the right hand also tells us something else. What the angels said to the disciples. They said, men of Galilee, as sure as you saw him rise, guess what? He will come back the exact same way. That is certain. It is absolutely and 100% certain. He will return. And that is the confidence we have in his ascension. But once his position was secured to the right hand of the throne of God, he also told us that his replacement was for our good. And Jesus... Jesus' replacement was the Holy Spirit. We were told that it was for our good that He leave. Those were Jesus' words Himself. Now we all know that the Spirit of God has been at work 
throughout God's history of redemption. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came on David. He came on Saul. He came on Samson and the prophets. He hovered above above the waters at creation. Yet His ministry was not to its fullest until after Jesus's. Because at Pentecost, we're told in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God was poured out on mankind. That's where we saw the explosion of the church. And we're the continuation of that initial explosion as God works in us. Because here we are, most of us are Gentile believers, not coming from a Jewish background. God's Spirit has been poured out on us. We're outside the covenant community until God's work of redemption was accomplished in Christ. And now the Spirit of God flows into our lives. The Spirit of God testifies to you and me that we are indeed children of God. And that one day He will seal us for the day of redemption. That we will be with Christ for all of eternity. That is another result of Christ's ascension. But not only is He at the right hand and not only are we blessed with the Holy Spirit, there's a third thing we should notice too that happens As Jesus ascended to the right hand, His work continues. And His work is chiefly that of intercession. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 writes this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In this passage, we find a great truth about what Christ does for us in heaven as He has ascended to the right hand of God. And that is He intercedes for us. You see, what this passage teaches us is that Jesus is both completely sympathetic to our cause And He is ultimately powerful. He is powerful in that He is God. He has conquered death. But He is also sympathetic to you and I. Because He walked where we've walked. He's been tempted in the ways we have been tempted. And so He reigns in heaven next to the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. Interceding for us in a powerful compassion communicating to our Father our needs for grace and mercy. John Murray labeled this omnipotent compassion. What a great phrase to describe the work of Christ right now. Omnipotent compassion. All-powerful, all-loving. That is what Jesus does right now at the Father. You know, often you and I do not pray as we should pray, do we? We pray about our wants, our desires, our needs. Often we laugh when we hear our kids say, Dad, if I ask God for a stereo or a, maybe in these, this day and age, a, a PlayStation 3 or an Xbox 360, Dad, will He give it to me? Well, we know the answer. The answer is probably no, that's not If it's God's plan, well, sure, He'll give it to you, but not necessarily that's a part of God's specific plan. But what's comforting to each of us, if we're God's children, is though we might pray prayers similar to that, we might not laugh at them as we laugh at our children's prayers, Jesus corrects our prayers and 
speaks perfect prayers to the Father on our behalf. We might be off in a little way or wanting more of the plan of God to work more in our favor or whatever it might be. But our loving Lord continues to intercede for us. And because His work on earth was complete, He covers us. We all struggle with sin, don't we? And there are certain sins that beset us and and bewail us. They come again and again. We're tempted over and over. And how many times have we learned the lesson? Don't do this. This is outside God's plan or not His perfect will, but yet we indulge in those things. And yet the Father, I'm sorry, yet Jesus in His omnipotent compassion intercedes for you and I. Lord, forgive Him. Lord, I'm working on Him. Lord, the Holy Spirit is speaking truth to them. And I am confident, Lord, these things will happen. The accuser, our great enemy, brings accusation after accusation against them. And it is our trust in Christ. He is our shield. He is the one who puts out all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It is because He is our intercessor that we can stand against our enemy. And we can appear before God the Father as righteous and a blameless child, clothed in the robes of Christ. That is the sweet, omnipotent compassion that our Lord displays at the right hand of God the Father. So not only does He sit in that position, orchestrating God's orders, not only does He have a replacement on earth with the Holy Spirit because He has left, and not only does He display omnipotent compassion in His intercession, lastly, we are united with Him in heaven. Paul writes, we have been raised with Christ, and therefore we are to reign with Him. Part of the glory of the church of Christ's intercession is that we get to accompany our elder brother. We actually get to go up there and sit with him in heaven. We talk about it often when we do the Lord's table that we get to dine with him. We Americans often take that thing for granted that we have this relationship with God. But it's not that easy. You have to be a part of the invitation. You have to be covered in order to go see the bridegroom. You have to be transformed to go in and meet with Him. And that's what Christ does. He unites us with Him to go into heaven. Paul writes this in Colossians 3, If you have been raised with Christ, and if you are a child of God, you have, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. As a result of Jesus' ascension, Paul tells us things about us should change. We should no longer live for the things of this world, but we should set our hearts and minds, our thinking and our emotions, on the glories of heaven. This warns against a great evil that has beset the world, and that is worldliness. And please hear me, worldliness is not drinking or smoking or whatever you might call it. It's not just our speech, but it goes much deeper than that. Worldliness is thinking the goals that mankind has outside of God. 
It's living in a world where God is absent. We label this in a number of different ways. One of the snares of this world is materialism. Materialism is the idea that stuff matters and that all that matters is what is in the world, not what's outside the world. And it's totally antithetical to God's kingdom. Materialism does not believe in a hereafter or a God that judges our thoughts and intention. No, all that matters is the glorification of self through the acquirement of possessions, power, or prestige. Another one we have a great dose of here in America is individualism. It is the thinking that I must depend on myself and only myself and no one else. Now it's true, biblically speaking, we all have a load to bear. But we're called as Christians to bear one another burdens. We are to help out. We are to be a community. We are to support one another. But individualism is often displayed in our lives that we're the one to receive glory and we're not to seek any help from anyone. We're our own man. As, as, as Sinatra said, I did it my way. That is, that is worldliness. A third thing we need to watch out for is conformism. In other words, that we do things just to please another person. Ultimately, it's the fear of man rather than the fear of God. We want to sort of bite our way, go under the radar, not be a blip on the screen. We just want to walk the way everybody else walks. And conformism denies the lordship of God. See, the lordship of God calls us to follow Him no matter what else is happening around us. Though we be Daniel, and though we be in a country that is completely blasphemous to Almighty God, we are to be like Daniel and say, we are going to honor God and we are not going to eat the food that is outside of God's will. That's what God calls us to when we set our minds on things above. A fourth thing of worldliness is relativism. And that's the whole idea that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe in something, even though it's completely opposite or completely contrary to someone else's belief. It's okay just as long as you believe in something. And this too is worldliness. It denies that God possesses all truth and that Jesus Himself is the truth. That is worldliness. And we need to guard from that. Paul tells us to set our mind, to set our hearts on things above. That implies two things, I would say, to us in our, I guess, our modern way of thinking. We need to think about the glories of heaven. We need to conform our thinking to what is true about eternal realities. That it isn't how much I have in the U-Haul when I die. It's about glorifying God. And the second is our heart, that our emotions would be tied to this thing called God's glory. That we would desire in our heart to sing for His praises. That we would desire in our heart to love our neighbor and to do the tough things that God requires us to do. I don't know when I picked this CD up, but I did a couple uh, years ago. And it's done by a guy named Johnny Cash. Perhaps you've heard of him. Johnny Cash is known as the man in black. And Johnny Cash has a remarkable uh, transformation that happened in his life and also in his wife's life. If you 
watched his movie, it was sort of displayed, but not completely. It was more about music and him singing. But I think if Johnny Cash would have had been present when the movie was done about him, it would have been told a different way. Because Johnny Cash is a life transformed by the gospel of grace. And this song that I'd like you all to play comes from uh, his last album he did. It's called His Mother's Hymn Book. This whole album is about songs about heaven and His glory. The other day, Amber and I were sort of having a stressed out day. Maybe you've had one of those. And uh, we were a bit overwhelmed. And somehow I just happened to grab this and put it in. And one of the great things about music as we sing about here in worship is it reminds us of eternal truths. Things greater and grander than our own little world or our own little environment. It teaches us those things. And so uh, today we're going to listen to one of Johnny's songs. You've probably heard it before. If you could play number seven. We'll listen to that and then we'll close. Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to that home on God's celestial shore I'll fly away I'll fly away oh glory I'll fly away when I die hallelujah by and by I'll fly away Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away To that land where joy will never end I'll fly away I'll fly away, oh glory I'll fly away When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Oh, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Amen. You know, we we need to be reminded of those things, don't we? And that's what it means to set your heart and your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Because that's our hope. All these things of earth, they're weights and they're cords that tie us down. But when we meditate and when we delight on things of eternity, that expulsive love that Thomas Chalmers preached of pushes out all these other things. Because that's how transformative is the love of Christ. And that is our hope that we will one day be with Him for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for Your work in each of our lives. And I want to thank You for Your work that You did in Johnny Cash's life. How You broke a man and transformed his song to a song of glory. 
to where when he died, the very last thing he wanted to make sure that he wanted people to remember him by was where he was going. And Lord, may that be true of us. That we point people to where we're going. This isn't our home, Lord. Our home is with You. And we thank You, Jesus, that because of Your work, Your ascension, one day we're going to get to reign with You. And every day will be like the day before, and every day will be more and more glorious as we get to bask in Your infinite love and see You for all the delight that is true in You. Oh Lord, forgive us for not having hearts set upon You. And Lord, I would ask that You create in each of us a hunger and thirst, desires that long for that eternal home, that long to be with You. Lord, help us to be witnesses to these truths. And we ask that all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.